Everyone has questions. Why am I here? Where will I go when I die? Is there really truth? But not everyone has biblical answers. Welcome to The Pastor Study, a ministry of pastorstudy.org. Join us now as we study the Bible to draw closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Pastor Tom Brock. Welcome to The Pastor's Study. Let me tell you the story of a man named Luke. Luke goes to church every Sunday. He sings the hymns. He listens to the prayers. And then he leaves church and the rest of the week doesn't think about God, doesn't say a prayer. Not a, but next Sunday, he's in church again. He sings the hymns, etc. But the rest of the week, no, do you know what Luke's last name is? Warm. And Jesus said, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Today we do the last of the seven churches of Revelation. It's the most stunning rebuke that of, of all the seven churches. This is the church of Laodicea, the church that was lukewarm. Would you take out your Bible, turn with me, to Revelation chapter 3, and going back to the globe here, just remember, we are, here we are in the United States, but today we go back to the year 95 AD, <clears throat> to the ancient area called Asia Minor. Today it's called Turkey, and there were seven churches that Jesus sent seven different letters to, and today we're going to do the last, the lukewarm church of Laodicea. Before we begin, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we just can't help but think of how lukewarm the churches in America have become. We have whole denominations that are endorsing abortion, homosexuality, that are saying that you're not the only way to be saved, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, you would rescue us from lukewarmness and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Luke, excuse me, Luke, Revelation <laughs> chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Jesus says this to John. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, let's stop there and let me tell you about the ancient city of Laodicea. It was founded in 250 B.C. by Antiochus II, king of Syria. He named the city after his wife, Laodice. Laodicea was on the most important road of Asia. It was one of the wealthiest cities on earth. Much banking and finance came out of this city. The Laodicean uh, city was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD, but the city was so wealthy that they quickly rebuilt without even needing the aid of the Roman Empire. And one scholar uh, said, Laodicea was so wealthy it did not even need God. <laughs> Laodicea was known for producing beautiful black woolen cloth. They had a flourishing medical school at Laodicea. Uh, they had their famous ear ointment and, and eye ointment. They would export these little tablets that people ground into powder and mixed into an eye salve. Colossians chapter 4 verse 16 shows that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, but that letter has been lost. 
This church gets no compliment. Jesus compliments the other churches, these other seven churches. He doesn't compliment Sardis, and he doesn't compliment Laodicea. But at least in Sardis, he says there's a little remnant that is still following Christ. In the church of Laodicea, there was no remnant. Everybody had gone lukewarm. And then, finally, we know from history, there was a church in Laodicea until the 1300s A.D. Today, the city lies in ruins. Again, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, <clears throat> write this. Jesus is talking about himself now. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Here's the first lesson today. Jesus is the true witness of God. Do you know what the word Amen means? Literally in Hebrew it means truly, let it be so. So if your preacher's preaching and somebody says, Amen, in Hebrew he's saying, let it be so. That's true. Well, Jesus is the Amen. He's the true witness of God. And the reason Jesus is the only true witness of God is from John chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Only Jesus has seen God the Father for all eternity, so only Jesus can tell you what God is like. So, if you want to know God, you don't look within, you don't read New Age books, you look at Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is the first thing that God created. Because it says here, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. They deny the Trinity. They deny that Jesus is the eternal God. Well, what do we do with this? It says here, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. Well, here's our response. The word beginning can also be translated here, source of, origin of. We could say God the Father is the beginning of creation because he's the one that began it. And, and when it says here that Jesus is the beginning of creation, we've got to remember all the other verses and what they teach, like... John 1, 1, Jesus was, the, was God, and all things came into being through Jesus, John chapter 1. So if Jesus is the one through whom the universe came about, he can't be part of the creation because he created it. <laughs> so uh, here's a simple rule. Scripture interprets Scripture. If you come upon a difficult verse, you've got to look at all the other verses and put it all together, or you become cult-like. So I was talking to someone who had this view, and he says to me, but the Trinity is too confusing. I mean, if, if Jesus is God, who is he talking to? Who is he praying to in the Garden of Gethsemane? I said, well, you have one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but they're distinct persons, so what you have is God the Son talking to God the Father. Well, that's so confusing. It doesn't make sense, he said. I said, that helps me believe it, because if God made perfect human sense, I'd be suspicious that some human dreamed him up. <laughs> but because the Trinity is so mind-boggling and beyond us, I'm thinking that shows it comes from heaven. Jesus is the beginning of creation in the sense that he's the one who began it. He's the source of, he's the origin of the creation. Look at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's the most scathing rebuke in all the seven letters. Here's the next lesson. Beware of being a lukewarm Christian. John Walvrood was a New Testament scholar who said, More hopeful is the state of one who has been untouched by the gospel and makes no pretense of putting his faith in Christ than the one who makes some profession, but by his life denies Christ. How many have outwardly conformed to the requirements of the church without a true state of being born again? How many church members are far from God, yet by their membership in the church they have a false sense of security? In the history of the human race, no one has been harder to reach for Christ than the religionist, far easier to win the prostitutes and publicans than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's the next lesson. True riches are spiritual. These Laodiceans, they thought they were so rich. Jesus says, you're poor. You know, I, I read of this pastor that's going uh, up. He's going to go up to the altar to say the prayers in front of the whole church. And people put a, a note on the pulpit if they want something special prayed for. And the note said, please pray for a certain man who is becoming rich. <laughs> True riches are spiritual. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may be not seen, and salve to anoint your eyes. Remember, Laodicea was known for their eye ointment, so that you may see. Here's the next lesson. According to that, Jesus takes away our shame and our blindness. If you're a Christian watching this program today, it's because Jesus took away your shame. You know he's forgiven your sins. Here it also says he takes away your blindness. I think that's a process. <laughs> he takes away your blindness, but not necessarily immediately. I, I, I think I was a Christian in high school, but I worked in the Montgomery Ward's toy department, and when they didn't give me the raise that they said they were going to, I stole $20 worth of merchandise. Didn't think anything of, of it. Then I went to college. I think I was a Christian in college. I remember cheating on a test. Didn't think anything about it. Later in college, God starts to deal with me. And I, what, three years, four years later, went back to Montgomery Wards and gave them money for what I had done. And when I, you know, I used to be able to, to drive the car and not even think about speeding. Well, my senior year in college, I'm taking the book of Romans, chapter 13, where Paul says, if you break the law, you're sinning. I haven't been able to speed with a full conscience since. So, I mean, some people, some Christians say, oh my God, and you've got to point out to them, do you realize that's a violation of the second commandment? And so he takes away our sinning, and our blindness, that is, <clears throat> but it's a process. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. <clears throat> Here's the next lesson. Jesus still loves a wretched church. Up in verse 17, he says, you Laodiceans, you're wretched. Here in verse 19, he says, but I still love you. 
we, we all love the great hymn written in the 1700s by the former slave trader John Newton, who became a pastor. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, some churches change it and they get rid of the word wretch. I think I was at a funeral once and amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. Well, don't change his words. We're wretches. If you don't think you're a wretch, you don't need Jesus. <clears throat> I've shared this before. Years ago, I'm watching the Phil Donahue show. He has the whole studio audience sing Amazing Grace. When they get to the line that saved a wretch like me, Phil waves his arms. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what's wrong with, with religion. I want you to know Phil Donahue is not a wretch. I'm a pretty nice guy. And I remember thinking, Phil, you don't get it. Until you realize you're a sinner, you're a wretch, you don't need Jesus. And in this verse, Jesus is saying here, if you feel you're too wretched for God, like the Laodiceans were, I still love you. I can forgive you. Come back. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Here's the next lesson. Thank God when he disciplines you. William Barclay wrote these words. It is the fact of life that there is no surer way of allowing a child or young person to end in ruin than to allow him to do as he likes. It is the fact of life that the best athlete, the finest scholar, received the hardest and most demanding training. The discipline of God is not something we should resent, but something for which we should be devoutly thankful. In other words, if, you're, if you feel right now you're going through some discipline that God has laid on your life, praise Him for that. It shows you He loves you. If, if He didn't discipline you, He wouldn't care about you. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10 says this, God disciplines for us, for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, yesterday I was, I was jogging. And you know what I was thinking of as I was running? <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> I hate exercising. <laughs> and I, I, I lift weights and I run and I hate it. Um, but you know what I love are the results. I feel so much better. I'm healthier. I'm mentally sharper, I think. So even though I hate the discipline, I love the results. Well, I don't like it when God disciplines me and, and maybe chastises me for something, but I'm grateful he does because if he didn't, I'd be in trouble. You, you know, if you see a rusty sword, you know what the blacksmith does? He pits, puts the sword into the fire. After the sword starts to glow, he takes the hammer, he starts pounding on the sword, and the, the rust flies away. Well, the, the truth is we've all got rust, we've all got sin. God puts us into the fire. It's called discipline. But it's a good thing that he does because it, it makes me pure. Look at verse 19. So, because he disciplines, so be zealous and repent. Here's the next lesson. Discipline yourself so that God won't have to. You know, I pray that periodically for myself. God, help me discipline me so you don't have to. So I'm thinking of here's a, a group of Christian men. They meet together once a week. It's their accountability group. They pray for each other. They hold each other accountable. How are you doing in this area? How are you doing in that area? All over the world, there are 
Alcoholics Anonymous groups, and they pray, they, I don't know if they pray for each other, but they hold each other accountable. They're disciplining themselves so that God won't have to discipline them. And if you don't have a prayer partner, every Christian needs somebody that you pray with once a week who holds you accountable. And when you do that, here's what Chuck Swindoll says are the seven questions you should ask with your prayer partner once a week. Number one, have you been with a woman or man this week in an inappropriate way? Number two, have you been above reproach in your finances? Number three, have you exposed yourself to any explicit material this week? Number four, have you spent daily time in prayer and Bible reading this week? Number five, have you fulfilled your calling this week? Number six, did you spend time with your family this week? Number seven, did you just lie to me? <laughs> Discipline yourself. Get a prayer partner, get into an accountability group so God doesn't have to. Verse 20, Jesus said, famous verse here, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Next lesson is this. To be a Christian, you both hear and, excuse me, the, the, the next, session, uh, next lesson is this. In Christianity, God seeks man. Now, can we see the picture here, very famous picture of Jesus standing at the door of your heart and knocking. This is what distinguishes Christianity from all world religions. In world religions, you seek God, and if you seek him hard enough, he might show up. Christianity is the opposite. In Christianity, God seeks man. In fact, God becomes a man and goes after man and knocks on the doors of the heart of every man to get in. That's the difference. In Christianity, God seeks man. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Here's the next lesson. To be a Christian, you both hear and open the door. If you won't hear God's word, you're probably not a Christian. But even that's not enough. A Christian not only hears the word of God, he opens his door to the Word of God. Now, nobody does that perfectly. In fact, there are days Christians slam the door in God's face. But if you're really a Christian, afterwards you say, God, I'm so sorry, forgive me. I open the door again. <laughs> Verse 20, Jesus says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Here's the next lesson. Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. Now, I grew up with a, a buddy of mine in Omaha, and he said to me some time ago, and I don't know where he's at spiritually, but he says to me, because he knows I'm a preacher, Tom, do you believe it's possible to have a personal relationship with God? And I could tell by the way he asked the question, he thought that was kooky. And I said to him, yes. Now, that doesn't mean I hear voices from heaven, but I talk to God in prayer, and God talks to me through the Bible, and when I'm at church, etc. So, so, yeah, and I said, God does want to have a personal relationship with you. And I want you, to, want you to notice this. In this verse, it's not the word for breakfast. It's not the word for lunch. It's the word for dinner. The way you got personal and intimate with a friend in the uh, 95 AD, you had dinner with him. It was a long, drawn-out meal. So that when Jesus says, I want to sup with you, he wants to have that intimate, long meal with you. Uh, he wants to dwell with you. Jesus said this in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus wants to make his home with you. I mean, be careful who you make your home with. 
I, I have a porch and in the spring come the morning doves and I've let them do this maybe two springs where I'll let them lay their eggs and they have the little nest. Finally, you know, they poop all over the porch. It stinks in there. It's got, you know what I do now? <laughs> when they come in the spring, I get my broom out. You're out of here. And they don't, they're, they're not in my porch anymore. You know, if you're making your home with the devil, with things of the world, your life's going to stink. And Jesus says, I want to make my home with you. Let me in. Lesson, next lesson is verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's the next lesson. The reward for the conqueror is you will be eternal royalty. You know when you watch the royal weddings in London, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral and all the robes and carriages and golden crowns and all the big jewels, that's nothing compared to what we're going to get. <laughs> we're going to be royalty. And when it says that we will sit on Jesus', on Jesus throne with him, I think it means this. At the end of time, all Christian believers will be in heaven, seated with the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the King of the universe. And because he's our Father and we're his children, we're going to be royalty too. And then the last verse, verse 22. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And with that, Jesus closes his seven letters to these seven ancient churches. And if you have ears to hear, boy, do, does the American church need to hear what Jesus says about becoming lukewarm. Pray for the church in America. Amen. Welcome to the portion of the pastor's study where we now ask Pastor Brock to share with us his knowledge of scripture and his insights to answer questions we have regarding the Bible, our Lord, and our everyday walk with him. We invite you, if you have a question that you'd like Tom to address at a future time, to go to our website, pastorstudy.org, two S's, um, and submit a question and we'll ask Tom to respond to it on a later show. Pastor Brock, does the Bible ever talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus? You know, Jackie, the Revelation 3.20, I think, is the closest you get. So, you know, the main, the main way the Bible talks about uh, Christ is we have personal. It does, actually, the word personal is not in there. You have faith in him. And uh, no offense, but there are some Christians that you have to have a personal relationship with Christ to be saved. Well, yeah, you do, but the question is, what does that mean? For some people, it means you have to know the moment you accepted Christ to be saved. I used to have a guy that would write me, and he, he was insistent. If, and I, I don't know the moment I was saved, Jackie. I was raised in the church, and I know some big moments, but I, I believed in Christ as long. Well, then I'm not saved, because I don't know the moment I was saved. And I wrote him back, show me one verse in the Bible where it says you have to know the moment. There's two kinds of Christians. There's the Paul Christian who got converted. Paul could tell you when he got saved on the road to Damascus. But then there's the Timothy Christian who was raised by his grandmother Eunice and Lois and he was just raised in this. I don't think Timothy knew. So it, it, it is not important that you know when that personal relationship started. It's important that you have one now, that you are right now trusting Christ for your salvation. You know, I, that's interesting that you just made that comment because growing up you know, you said you grew up in a Christian home. Mm -hmm. I grew up the same way, you know, and you don't really make that commitment to 
continue if you're growing in it. Yeah, yeah. And Jackie, so I was raised Missouri Synod Lutheran, very conservative Lutheranism. I go to college at the University of Texas. I went to my first tent revival to see what it was like. I'm standing there worshiping these two Campus Crusade for Christ guys, and I love Campus Crusade for Christ, but they come up to me, the Lutheran, and they say, Tom, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as your personal Lord and Savior? And you know, Jackie, I remember what I said. Yeah? <laughs> that was my response. Because in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, they don't talk about it in terms like that. But um, uh, so th the main thing is we're trusting Christ, whether you know when it started or not. But there you go. <laughs> okay. You talked about God disciplines us. So does that mean God punishes or does he ever punish us? For our sins? I, I want to put it this way. As a Christian, Jesus took the punishment for my sins. I'm forgiven. If I died now, I'd go to heaven. I'm not going to hell. So he doesn't punish us. Jesus took the punishment, which lands in hell. That's taken care of. But he does discipline us. Okay. And, and Jackie, if, if, you get, if you rob a bank, Jackie, and you go to jail, you know, your sins are forgiven through Christ. If you repent, you're forgiven for robbing the bank. You're still going to jail. There still is discipline for sin. Okay, so how can a person discipline themselves so that God doesn't have to? Yeah, and, and that's, that's where we need accountability. And I, I teach that every Christian needs some prayer partner, some accountability partner, maybe a little group that holds you accountable. And I'm thinking of these, these groups for men where they hold each other accountable for pornography addiction. I think of men and women going to Alcoholics Anonymous, where there's a Christian uh, uh, version of it called Alcoholics Victorious, and they hold each other accountable. But accountability is the way we discipline ourselves so God doesn't have to step in. Okay, you mentioned a couple of groups that you would call accountability groups, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So how does a person go about finding those groups mm -hmm. or finding a partner? Yeah. I would say every Christian needs to be part of a church. So if you're not part of a Christian church, get one. And then pray for the Lord to lead you to some, if you're a man, some man, a woman, some woman, who you can pray with once a week. Tom, we've only got about a minute left, and okay. we've now finished the seven churches of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Would you review what you think the major lesson for us is yes. from all of this? I will. And Jackie, Fred, don't, Fred's our director, Jackie's husband. Don't be too mad, Fred. I forgot my list. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. I'm back. <laughs> Here's what we learned. The church of Ephesus was taught, beware of losing your first love. The church of Smyrna was taught, beware of the fear of suffering. Don't su fear suffering. Church of Pergamum, beware of compromising Christian doctrine. Church of Thyatira, be more, beware of moral compromise. Church of Sardis, beware of spiritual deadness. Church of Philadelphia, beware of not holding fast to Christ. And lastly, Laodicea, beware of being lukewarm. But Jackie, there you go. We want to thank you for being with us this week. We pray that God would be with you, granting you his richest blessings until we're together again next time. Thank you for watching the Pastor Study. You can watch more of our programs at pastorstudy.org. We are on the air preaching the gospel of Christ because of our generous support of you, our viewers. Would you consider supporting our ministry? You may do so at pastorstudy.org. Or write the Pastor Study, P.O. Box 41294, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55441. May the blessing of our one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you today and always.